Hello, I'm Nicole Aberdeen and I write about books for Good Weekend. Welcome to the Books, Books, Books podcast in which I interview the best writers from Australia and overseas about their latest books. Thank you for joining me. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the country where I live and work and from where I'm joining this conversation, the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past and present, to the elders of all communities and cultures across Australia and to leaders of the future. You can listen to this podcast, all of the episodes at nicoleabity.com.au or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Today, I'm delighted to welcome one of Australia's most loved writers, Nikki Gemmel, to Books, Books, Books. We will be talking about her latest novel, The Ripping Tree, published by Fourth Estate, an imprint of HarperCollins. Nikki's first short story ever was published in Quadrant by Les Murray. She is the best-selling writer of 13 novels, including Shiver, Cleave and The Bride Stripped Bear. She's also written five non-fiction books, the most recent being After, a powerful memoir about her mother's death by suicide. Four of her books, Shiver, Cleave, The Bride Stripped Bear and The Book of Rapture, have made the long list of favourite Australian novels as chosen by readers of Australian Book Review. Her books have been translated into 22 languages and in France she has been called the female Jack Kerouac. Nikki writes a weekly column for the Weekend Australian magazine. One reviewer has said about her latest book, the one we'll be talking about today, The Ripping Tree, if ever a book deserves to become a classic, The Ripping Tree does. Nikki has said about her own writing, I've always loved fearless, dangerous writing, where the aim is to disturb, that makes people uncomfortable, gets them to think. Nikki, welcome to Books, Books, Books. Thank you, Nicole. It's lovely to be here. It's lovely to have you here. (laughs) Now, you have described this latest novel of yours, The Ripping Tree, as a depth charge of truth wrapped in the glossy package of a thriller, a love story. What's it about? <laughs> it's hard to encapsulate it in, you know, in, in, in a succinct way. Basically, I began with the idea of a stranger in a strange land, and I took that cue from Viola in Twelfth Night. So a young woman, 16-year-old Thomasina Trelawla, she is um, shipwrecked off the Australian coast. It's not specified where. She's the only survivor of the shipwreck. She's rescued by an Indigenous man and taken to an illustrious house called Willowbray. And she basically thinks, oh, my goodness, this is amazing. Like Viola in Twelfth Night, she thinks, hey, I have a chance to reinvent myself. She changes how she dresses. dresses. She wants to become a boy in terms of how she dresses. And she goes against the decorum of the time. I must say this is set in early colonial times. And basically what Thomasina, my Tom, realises over a short, sharp seven days, she realises that what she thinks is saving her initially in terms of this family and this wonderful house that she live, that they live in may actually be destroying her. And so the novel becomes a race to escape the clutches of this family. Nikki, thank you. Could you read a short extract from The Ripping Tree, please? Yes, of course. This is quite early on in the novel. 
when Thomasina is just getting to know the family around her. The woman leads me to the bed, and at the strength in the encircling arms, I wilt. The ocean is back through me, and I sway and fall to the sheet like a mole wanting to tunnel into its home. Home, so removed from all this. When I depart this world, I want my body slipped into the sweet, wild earth of my unbound girlhood, my balming earth, but I fear I'll never get back to it now. This is my only certainty here, that I'll never again sleep in the home that holds my heart hostage, my little teapot of a cottage with its snug windows of warped glass and sooty candle nooks and narrow stairs to my attic lair. I'd always leap over the bottom five in my race to clatter into the day. I nestle on this strange bed now, want to weep. With my father, I was exactly the person I wanted to be. I was found. And now I need some kind of ballast. I am lost. Name? Age? Sixteen. A softening voice. I think there's still something of the child in you, yes? You do look very young. Poor Poppet, what you've been through? My hair is smoothed behind an ear and smoothed and I nudge into the sudden tenderness like a dog wanting a pat. The woman's fingers hold my head firm on either side and find both temples and rub in a circular motion and I shut my eyes and surrender to the authoritative feminine touch that's melting away my headache. My mother died of a lung disorder when I was four and all she left me with was a craving for a fingertip slowness down a cheek and a fierce female holding where everything is soothed right. My father left me with the memory of freedom in a life flavoured by the earth. He didn't want his girl in corsets that restricted her breathing or skirts without the convenience of pockets. He wanted my hands ready for the world. You must have pockets for your fossils and sticks to collect the world, Tommy Tom. And now an unreadable woman fusses around me. Her hands straighten the bedclothes and rearrange items on the bureau and tuck Jack's knife under the Bible as if she'd sullied by the sight of it. Then she goes to the curtains and completely shuts out the light. What dreams, child? Pardon? This morning. You were crying and calling out, clawing at the air to be saved. The mammy mimes madness in restless sleep. Oh, I've no memory of it. Goodness. I'll have to watch for any signs of slippage. After my father's death, my brother had one thing over me when it came to stubbornness and strop. He threatened to have me locked in the county women's asylum more than once, and as my legal guardian, he could have done it. That look, Thomasina, it's too much. Would you care for the asylum, perhaps? Would you? It can be arranged. Just try me. Go on. I always knew that a charge of insubordination or willfulness was enough to have me vanished. Women around me had been swallowed by less. Best time for being a grass widow, although why she should have been punished when her husband was the one who got bored and ran off, leaving her to look after two small children, I don't know. Mary Harris for rebellion against domesticity, M. Snow for fret sickness after her baby came, Hetty Rattle for fret sickness when her baby didn't come, Ada Wilton hysteria, 
Paralakan hysteria. And what exactly did that word mean? My brother's solution to the vexed matter of my existence lay in a parish in the colonies, regrettably far from his own estate, but close enough to occasionally keep an eye on me. I could never be left in Knockleby, completely alone, unwatched and penniless. Ambrose had burdened our father's house with debt to fund his new life in the new world, and now there's no family money left. And I was not allowed to be left behind to become the village eccentric in my perplexing boy clothes. But what Ambrose doesn't know is that I'll only marry for love and want. And that decision will remain sacrosanct. Nikki, thank you so much for that. You've said about this book, you mentioned before Twelfth Night and uh, Viola. But you've also said on other occasions that the books are crossed between Henry James's book, The Turn of the Screw, and the film Get Out. What are they about and what was it about them that influenced you in the writing of this book? Uh, Get Out and The Turn of the Screw, I'd both describe them as psychological thrillers with the trauma of the protagonist at their centre. And you really get into the head of both those protagonists. In terms of The Turn of the Screw, I was fascinated by it. It's a very short book. I was fascinated by the building tension. You don't know what quite is going on. It's a very unsettling novel. It ends with complete trauma. You don't know if what you've read is a ghost story or not. It's a story that stays with you. And I wanted that with The Ripping Tree. I wanted to be this to be something that lingers in the reader's mind. And like the, the, the Turn of the Screw, hopefully something that, you know, readers are staying up all night to find out what exactly happens to the protagonist. In terms of the film Get Out, Get Out, a wonderful film. I was fascinated by that. It's about uh, a young man who goes to his girlfriend's house in the country, an illustrious house, very isolated, and he gradually realises this, that this amazing, very wealthy family is not as they seem and something very unsettling is going on there. So like my Thomasina, he has to work out a way to escape. And his life is threatened, and I wanted my Tom's life threatened too. I'd never written in the thriller genre before, but I kind of mashed it up with uh, colonial historical fiction and, as I said, you know, a psychological thriller as well. So I don't quite know what I've created here. And I must admit, for ages I thought, oh, gosh, is this working? Is this, is this what have I done? I can't quite, quite grasp it. Will readers get what I'm trying to do here? But amazingly, it seems like they do. <laughs> Nikki, I want to ask you about the writing process. I know that uh, you wrote it over a period of 10 years or so, and during mm -hmm. that period uh, you wrote other books, you wrote other mm -hmm. non-fiction books, you wrote some children's books, and a lot happened to you personally. You lost both of your parents in that time and you had a newborn child as well. Mm -hmm. So. When did you find the time to write it and how did you how did you intersperse the writing of this book with the writing of the other books? How did it all fit together and with your life and your mother, uh, your life as a mother of four children? Oh, look, it was, it was very hard. <laughs> I find the writing process 
much harder as I get older. And that, of course, is the demands of home and motherhood. Um, you know, when I was younger, I used to go for huge 12-hour, 16-hour stretches of writing, you know, up until midnight or beyond, fueled by champagne and chocolate. I'd just go and I had this enormous amount of energy. Now I get to 9 p.m. and it's like, that's it, I'm done. <laughs> I just, I just can't stay awake longer. So what I find is I have to write within um, school hours. So, you know, I drop my youngest off to school at uh, by 9, I'm back at my desk by 9.15, 9.30, and then I just solidly work until about 3 o'clock when kids start coming home from school. They crash into my world enormously. And I must admit, you know, my brain isn't what it used to be too. I just have so many competing things in there. The ripping tree, the germ of the idea came just before I realised I was pregnant <laughs> at 44. I thought I was going through the menopause when my period stopped and it was like, oh, my gosh, I've got, I've got a baby but I've got a novel to write. Oh. And, Nikki, was that when you were still in London or were you home in yes. Sydney but still in London? Yes, I was still in London. And I we, we after 15 years we had finally decided to make the move home and I remember trooping into my agent's office in Covent Garden and saying, Godwin, he's, I call him Godwin, he's, he's David Godwin, that's my agent. I just said, Godwin, I'm going home. And he said, well, good riddance, Gamble, you've been wanting to say this, you've been wanting to do this for so long. But he said, go home and write your Aussie book, write your big Aussie book because I, I'd been kind of sidetracked by England through several books. I mean, from the no, from Love Song and Bride Strip Bear onwards, I'd written Brit-centric books and I hadn't written a novel based in Australia for a very long time and so I wanted to, I wanted to write a love letter to my land, my home, my country. And that's what I've done with, um, for me, with uh, The Ripping Tree. But I also wanted to pick at that scab of uh, colonialism, you know, traumatic truths that often seem buried or we don't want to confront them or face them. It, you know, it's perhaps a gaping wound within the Australian psyche. But I, I wanted to dive deep with that one. Um, so how did I find time to write this? You know, I I just gleaned time wherever I could and then, you know, I'd, I'd put it aside to make some more money basically to buy me time to write fiction. Um, so, I yes, I did a few other book projects in along the way. I did um, children's fiction, several series, and I did uh, a memoir about my mother and her euthanasia death after. So I take six months or a year out of this writing process. And then when I came back to The Ripping Tree, I had to read it all over again because, you know, I couldn't quite remember where I was up to or how far along I was. So it was a very, very lengthy process. Nikki, tell us about the title. There's a lovely story, I think, about where the title came from. Could you share that with us? <laughs> well, when I came back to Australia in 2011, I, I brought with me three little pommies who'd all been born in London. And my youngest at that stage, my daughter, she was three, four, and she arrived in Australia and she was fascinated by the trees, these amazing trees with long tongues of bark that you could peel away and play with. And she said, look, Mummy, look at the ripping tree. 
I love the ripping trees. And she kept on saying this word, this, this phrase, and I thought, oh, isn't that fantastic? My magpie writer's brain thinks that would be the most amazing title, The Ripping Tree. And so she's I, talking about paper bark trees, isn't yes. she, that you actually can pull strips off. Exactly, exactly. So that, you know, she as a, as a, as a young child was ripping the bark from the trees. So that's why she was um, calling them the ripping tree. And for me, I thought I love that title. So in a way I created the book around mm. the title mm. and the ripping tree in the novel, it's the scene of a an horrendous crime. It's um, There's a paper bark there um, and I just loved the metaphors about, you know, getting to the truth of something. Mm. So it all fit but it took me 10 years to make it fit <laughs> let's talk now a little bit then about the main characters tell us first of all about Poss what do we know about her childhood and by the time we meet her she's 16 what sort of a young woman is she Poss my protagonist I fell in love with her as I was writing her I set out thinking I, I, I want to write a character who could almost be a sibling of those wonderful characters in Australian, uh, you know, 19th century literature like uh, Sibylla from My Brilliant Career, Juju, Judy from Seven Little Australians, these strong, sparky, stubborn young women who are too honest for their own good, who haven't quite been tamed, who are a bit clumsy, a bit loud, don't quite fit in. I wanted a protagonist like that. So that's my pos. She was raised in eccentricity. She, um, uh, Her mother passed away when she was very young and she was raised by her father, who's a deeply eccentric, endearing character who decided that, um, you know, if a girl wants to wear trousers and climb trees and and hunt for rabbits and all the rest of it, then why shouldn't they be able to do that? Because they 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 were on a very isolated farm. So we, she was able to be raised in this way. I I wanted to write several characters who are delightfully masculine. You know, there's there's a few examples of toxic mm -hmm. mas masculinity in my book, but I wanted to counter that with very um warm, tender portraits of masculinity as well. So the father is is one of those portraits. And Nikki, just remind us, you might have mentioned that, what is Thomasina doing on this voyage? She's on a voyage with 132 people out from England to the colonies. And as you've explained, the, the ship is wrecked and she's the sole survivor. What brought her to Australia? She was being sent to Australia to be married off. This was after her father's death. Um, her older brother who she doesn't get on with decided that the only way he could, could contain and tame his untamable younger sister is to marry her off to a vicar in the colonies who he knows of so Thomasina knows nothing about this man except that he's twice her age and she is dreading it which is why when she is shipwrecked off the Australian coast and the only survivor she sees this as a chance to become someone else entirely. So let's talk now about the family on mm -hmm. whose doorstep she finds herself. It's the Craw family. Um, what we know about them is that they seem to be a very fine illustrious family. I'd like to start by asking you about Mr. and Mrs. Craw. What are they like? Their world is saturated in the Bible. 
they see themselves as very pious, God-fearing people, Scots by ancestry, um, but very, very complicated in terms of how they've acquired their wealth, um, what has happened in terms of great traumas on their land, uh, you know, not too long ago. Um, a very secretive family. They live in isolation. And basically it's a family under immense pressure and strain and it's cracking apart. And, you know, Tom, unbeknown to her, walks completely into this and starts asking questions, you know, about why things seem a bit odd or what's really going on. She doesn't know how to be nice and meek or quiet to have that curtain of ni niceness which Edith Wharton talks about, to have that put over her, she doesn't understand that. And this gets her into an awful amount of trouble. But, you know, the book is about the silencing of a woman and how she fights against the silencing too. My passion is um, fairness. And I think through most of my writing, you know, it's all about fairness in a way. There's a thread through it all. And this book as well has that passion for fairness in it and, and Tom has that passion for fairness. So if she perceives that something is unfair, she wants to question it. She wants to raise it. She hasn't learnt to keep her mouth shut and that's a problem for her. Now, Mrs Craw is particularly delighted when she turns up, isn't she, because she mm. has three sons and she's very sadly has lost daughters in the past. So she's very excited that this is a young woman that she can in effect, make into her own image that's that's turned up. Could you tell me a little bit about the the three Craw sons, in particular Mouse and his relationship with Tom? Yes. Well, there's Virgil, who is very quiet and secretive and just kind of watches Poss, but won't really extend a hand to help her. There's Tobin, the looker of the family. Um, he reminds me of Jane Austen's Wickham. Um, he is a bit of a cad and he sees his chance with Tom. And so there's an interesting dynamic there. Uh, she is initially taken in by him. And then there's Little Mouse, who's seven years old. He comes across as a delightful but very lonely little boy because basically this family is raised in isolation, a very isolated estate. So Little Mouse has no peers around him and gradually you realise that there's something not quite right about Mouse either within the context of the family. I was interested in the trope of the creepy child going back to Henry James um, and um, so I wanted there to be something very unsettling about Mouse that you keep on reading the book to kind of put your finger on what on earth is going on there or has gone on there with him. And how's this family regarded in the community, Nikki? Oh, uh, uh, illustrious, you know, fine, upstanding people. But, you know, there, there's a collusion of silence in that community too. You know, there are a lot of secrets amongst the people. There's a church scene there where the community gathers. Um, 
you know, there's a lot of dark history that has gone on among the white settlers within this community and they don't want an outsider asking too many questions about it because, you know, uh, in terms of um, uh, the authorities within the colony, they are starting to ask questions about certain things because there has been an element of lawlessness within the land. I um, I did a lot of research over this decade and I feel like, you know, in many ways it's all been poured into the novel. I want to ask you about that because I know that you started your you started your career as a journalist as with an ABC cadetship in um, radio, but you are still a practising journalist. You write a column for the Weekend Australian magazine each week. So I'm interested in how your training and your work as a journalist informs your writing and, in particular, your research. Look, I feel very grateful for my uh, training in uh, radio journalism in terms of how it informs fiction. It seems like they're polar opposites, but radio journalism taught me various things. One, really respect a deadline, and here I am saying, you know, it's taken me 10 years. But with the other books that I wrote within that time, the deadline was always respected. And two, um, not to be too precious about your work in terms of, you know, as a radio journalist, you have to paint vivid word pictures that, you know, fill a 50-second news item or a 30-second voice report. Or so. so you learn to become very lean and, and distill the essence of a scene. And if it's going to be ripped and slashed, so be it, you know, by an editor or whatever. Um, so you know, you learn just to let things go if they're not working. And I had two fabulous editors on this book through over the decade. And I must admit, I was all ears in terms of suggestions. And I'm very, very grateful for what we ended up with. Um, so radio journalism, it, it, it has really, really helped me. But I must admit, for me, I write my column in the Weekend Australian magazine to buy me time to write my fiction so basically every week my head fills up with this panic on you know maybe Sunday afternoon of oh my goodness what am I going to write what am I going to write this week the cupboard's bare yet again and that takes up a lot of mental energy but I always hope to have my column finished by Monday night Tuesday if I have to which leaves me the rest of the week to do what I really want to do, which is write fiction. I find it very difficult to write non-fiction and fiction at the same time, almost impossible. So I have to finish the column, put that away for the week, and then go to my fiction to make it all work. Let's go then to the research for this book. There are two areas I wanted to ask you about. One, the description of the home of Willow Bray. It's described in elaborate detail. And I wondered about what research you had done into early colonial homes. Oh, look, I um, I had a ball creating Willowbray. I wanted to create a house that was that sits at the centre of a novel in the way that Manderley does with Rebecca or Wuthering Heights does or even something like a privet drive, which is so central to that narrative of Harry Potter. I just I just love the idea of creating a really iconic colonial house, mansion. And lo and behold, you know, Australia has quite a few. I travelled to um, northwestern Tasmania and, uh, no, sorry, northeastern Tasmania, um, and it must have been about three-quarters of an hour outside of Launceston. There is a wonderful... National Trust property that's this 
huge colonial mansions still with kind of convict outhouses and stables and things attached to it. It looks like something out of the American Deep South. It, it's it's beautifully restored. You can go through it. My phone is full of photographs. It wasn't the only colonial house that I looked at. I went up to Port Macquarie. I looked at one here in Sydney as well. But, you know, sometimes it was just uh, a fireplace I took from one place or a kitchen from the other or wallpaper in another one or drapes, the curtains, the way they fell in another. Um, so basically my phone is just full of, you know, little tiny snapshots of that I know are go it, it's going to end up in a scene somewhere, but it might be just, you know, one bit of a colonial house mashed up together with another one. So let me ask you about maybe the central theme, I, I think it's probably the way to describe it of this book, and that is the relations between the European settlers and the Indigenous people. We're not going to talk too much about that because there'll be no spoilers here, but suffice to say that's a, a very important concern of the book. And I was interested to see in your acknowledgements that you said that Professor John Maynard from the University of Newcastle read your manuscript for you. Could you talk a little bit about that and about the research that informed the aspects of the writing about relations between Indigenous people and the early settlers? Yes, yeah, so I've been reading for years, um, you know, accounts of oral histories in terms of what happened, what really happened in terms of um, settler times. Uh, the brutality is almost unbearable, almost unreadable, but I didn't want to shy away from that because I do think we as Australians, uh, you know, we too easily bury it under the carpet. We don't want to know whatever. So I really wanted to confront the brutality and the horror of this history in a way wrapped, as you said earlier, within that glossy thriller package. Um, so I did a lot of research in terms of things that had happened and certainly what I write about, there are, um, you know, stories passed down that these things happened. There are some truly horrific yes. episodes in this book and I wanted to ask you if you had made those up or oh, if they were no. based in reality. Hard to believe that they had really happened. Yes, and, in fact, they came from my Year 9 boys' history. Um, so he he was bringing this material home from his high school and showing me because he had no idea either. And I was I was really grateful for the school that he was at for confronting this and showing this and having those year nine boys discuss this within their history classes. I had no idea until that time, until my son um, showed me these these records. So I did want to, um, I did not want to shy away from the horror because it is so horrific and brutal. Um, but I was very aware within the Ripping Tree, I did not want to speak in the voice of an Indigenous person. I did not want to write from their perspective. I didn't feel that was my place. I didn't feel I had the no knowledge all the right. I didn't want to tread on anyone's toes. I wanted to step back in terms of that. So, yes, it's written purely from Thomasina's perspective. It's in the first person. Um, so I was very aware of that. And with my heart in my mouth, 
my manuscript was handed over to wonderful Professor John Maynard in the Indigenous Studies Centre at the University of Newcastle. We went back and forth maybe over a year and it was such a rich learning process. You know, he had suggestions, some things like uh, in terms of the Indigenous names. He helped me. In fact, he named my Indigenous characters, which was wonderful. It was, you know, beautiful, beautiful names. Um, things like I, I had a scene with a bull roarer in there and Little Mouse, the seven-year-old boy, was playing with it. He found it and he said, you know, that would just not have happened. So, and he asked me to consider removing that scene. I was absolutely fine doing that. With the central horror he did not want it touched. He did not want it changed. And he obviously knew about these stories that it had been based on. And I got the feeling that there may have been gratitude that these things are, you know, talked about, are out in the open. And my thinking was perhaps someone will pick up the ripping tree, someone like my father who just loves his, you know, regular thriller, his historical thrillers and all the rest of it. He might pick up the ripping tree, perhaps get absorbed by the story and learn something in the process. I know the book's dedicated to your father and I've heard you say that you think this might be the first of your books that he'd actually <laughs> read and enjoy. Why did you say that? <laughs> oh, because my beautiful dad, he, um, years, decades ago, when I said in my early 20s, Dad, I want to write novels, he said to me, oh, waste of time, that. He was an old coal miner. He'd left school at 16. His world was you know, hard yakker down the pits. He did not understand the world of books and writing. When I was growing up, I think we had like Linda Goodman's Sun Signs on the bookshelf. And in fact, I don't think we even had a bookshelf and maybe St Judith Krantz and that was it in the World Book Encyclopedias. So I didn't grow up, you know, in a house of books at all. He didn't understand that world. When Shiva, my first novel was published, that was about mm, 23, three years ago, I think, um, I gave Dad a copy, you know, beautifully inscribed in the front, thanking him and all the rest of it. He opened the book, looked at the first page. There was a word on that first page that he didn't approve of. He shut the book and he said, that's it. And he never wrote, he never read anything of mine again and sadly he died late last year just before the ripping tree was published so he didn't get to read this one too but um I think it would have been one my only one out of all my books that he would have actually read and and enjoyed. Nikki I have to ask you about that I've read you saying that before that you didn't grow up in a house full of books that your parents didn't read all that much where then did your passion for reading and writing come from? Some wonderful teachers. You know, I, I went to Little Kiraville Public School, which is a school in, in Wollongong. I had an amazing teacher there called Mr Rice. He published in the school magazine, it was called the Kiraville Kookaburra, a poem um, of mine when I was like 10. And it was it's an awful poem <laughs> looking back. But um, just I can still remember the thrill of seeing my name attached to that and thinking, oh, this is wonderful. And then um, uh, I was ducks of my school when, in primary school and I got a, a gift voucher, a book voucher, and my dad took me to um, the, the local bookstore. I was in Sydney at that stage. My parents had split up, but he was still living in Wollongong, Coddington's bookstore in Crown Street in Wollongong, and he marched me up to the counter as proud as punch. He handed over the book voucher and he just said, 
my daughter's just won this and she needs a book that she will carry through life. And the lady looked at me and she said, I know exactly what to give you, young lady. And we walked up to the back of the store and she slipped out this beautiful leather-bound volume of Jane Eyre. And my dad was so proud and it was it was in the days where you could just go to a, a key change, a, a key cutting booth and they would emboss the leather for you. So dad got my name and the date embossed on this copy of Jane Eyre and I still have it and I still treasure it. So even though we weren't a house of books, my mum and dad, they certainly valued reading and they knew the importance of it and my mum actually became when she moved to Sydney she became passionate about the world of books this was post-divorce kind of post-housewife for her. <laughs> Let's go back and talk a little bit more about Thomasina one thing we should explain to um, listeners we'll call her Poss from now on that's her nickname Thomasina is the name that she's born with that she arrives in Australia with but when she has a chance to remake herself she uh, she takes the name Poss so I'm going to call her Poss from now on. When they first find the Craws first find Poss on their doorstep and they ask her where she came from she says I searched for a voice to tell them who I was and how I got to their house. And at various other times in the book, at times of emotional intensity, she finds herself speechless. To what extent is this book about this young woman, this shipwrecked young orphan, finding her voice? I think it's very important in terms of young women. Um, you know, I'm fascinated by how we render ourselves voiceless, often when we're younger. I mean, Edith Wharton, she did talk about this curtain of niceness that falls over us. And in a, in a way, it's a quietening, it's a meekness that befalls us. We learn our place in the world, and it is kind of a lesser, quieter place. So, I was fascinated by this concept and how Poss realizes that if she becomes this woman, if she becomes a woman who can fit into this world, then life will be pretty easy for her. But it doesn't feel like an authentic self to her. And she's raging. She's, you know, roiling underneath that um, something is very, very wrong here. So all the way through, I was fascinated about the silencing of women and women trying to find their voices sometimes finding those voices, sometimes failing to. I was also fascinated by the concept of ghosting, you know, very modern concept, but certainly, you know, it can be applied in situations at any time. And I wanted to write about that situation too and how it can render a woman voiceless as well by... What do you mean by that, Nikki, by ghosting? Well, by ghosting I mean... Poss sees something that, you know, is her truth. She raises questions about it and people are going, what do you mean? There's, no, there's nothing here, what, you know, you don't have to worry about that. It's no big deal. It's not an issue. Just forget about that. You're a little girl who doesn't need to know anything. Just, you know, go back to your bedroom and be quiet, basically. And Mr. Craw actually says to her a few times, you're imagining things, you're saying yes. things. It, it must be the bump on the head that you got. Exactly, exactly, because she did get a bump. Uh, you know, she was quite knocked around with the shipwreck. So I wanted this concept of ghosting to be introduced, which, uh, you know, which is interesting with Turn of the Screw and what James does with his protagonist too. They think they're going mad. They question, are they going mad? 
Are they seeing things? They start to question themselves and it's deeply rattling and silencing. So I wanted my my poor, lovely POS to go through this situation too. Um, I was fascinated that as a narrative thread throughout the book. Nikki, she talks a lot in the book about choice and about freedom. How much choice would there have been available to a young woman in her situation whose mother had died when she was four, her father died when she was 15? What sort of choices were available to her in England? Well, there weren't many, you know, besides being married off or becoming a spinster. Um, Her brother had basically taken any sense of choice over her future away from her and she raged at the unfairness of this she wanted to marry for love um, and she was being denied that chance and also with POS she had hanging over her all the time which was another strand of the research that I did that if she was too willful stubborn stroppy outspoken bolshy she could be carted off to it was called the county women's asylum in in England where she came from or, you know, a female factory in Australia. I, want, you know. I wanted to ask you about that. Let's go back to the well, the asylums in England. I'm not sure if they were the same as as the asylums here at that time, but you, you mentioned in that passage that you read there were references to several friends of hers who had mm-hmm. found themselves in an asylum. What did that mean for a young woman in that? If you, if you found yourself locked up uh, for hysteria in an asylum in England, what would your life be like? Well, you could disappear, you know, behind those high walls with all the research that I did. It was tragic. Some women just basically disappeared behind those walls and were never seen again. And POS, within the context of the story, she has a dear friend who um, this happened exactly to her. So she is aware of the threat of being incarcerated, you know, for for the most spurious of reasons. Um, It was a very real worry for her in terms of, the power that her brother had over her and how he could decide her fate and her future if she didn't go through with this marriage to this vicar that he had arranged. So, Nikki, you've mentioned how Ambrose tried to control her in England by this threat of the asylum. And as you've hinted, so much of this book is about power and control, about men, though not just men. Once she gets here, it's mm-hmm. all Mrs Crow as well, trying to control strong women. When Poss arrives in this household, she really turns it upside down. She challenges them in all sorts of ways. What does she do? What's it about her behaviour that they find so confronting? Well, she just refuses to conform. She refuses to do what they want them, what you know, what they want her to do. And this enrages them. It baffles them, bewilders them at the start, but then it completely enrages them. You know, the way she's been raised with her father is in a very free-spirited way that he encouraged her to have a voice and to use it um, and to use her physicality. You know, she's a wild child. She's like a Kathy in Wuthering Heights. You know, she just, she loves the land. She just wants to immerse herself in outside. And I wanted to create a really strong difference between the interior and the exterior worlds of Willowbray. Someone like a Mrs Crawl, the matriarch of the family, is terrified of it, has never got used to it. Um, You know, it, it took one of her children, her only daughter, 
um, it's spiky and and it's it's got it stings you and it bites you and there's nothing about the Australian landscape that she finds attractive. And I must admit, for me, coming off the back of 15 years in England, I kind of used my outsider eyes. You know, I, I, I am an Aussie and I've been an Aussie my whole life. But when I came back into Australia to live in it after being away for so long, I suddenly saw it the way, you know, British people around me had talked about, you know, in terms of they they considered Australia ugly. They said, you know, it's just yellow grass and our overhead power lines and everything bites you and stings you and and it's the leaves are spiky and and they prick you and all the rest of it. I suddenly saw my land through outsider eyes. So I wanted to give Mrs. Craw those outsider eyes too. But Poss as well, but with her it's all wonder. It's all, you know, this this young, open-hearted, childlike wonder, like Viola in when she gets to Illyria of like, what is this and where is this and this is amazing, whereas for Mrs. Craw it's like, oh, I just want to go home. I hate this place. She doesn't want to go outside. She's very no. frightened of anything outside and she tries yes. to keep Poss inside. So one yes. of the things that Poss does that drives them mad is something that her father's allowed her to do at home and that's to wear boys' clothes. Hmm. And there's one classic scene where she is she goes out the front of the house and meets a whole crowd of people from the town and the Craws are most embarrassed that she's presented herself in this way wearing um, men's clothes, one of their mm-hmm. son's clothes. How do they, the Craws, try to control her? Well, um, clothes are very important throughout the book and eventually they force corsets and petticoats and all the rest of it upon her. So, um, you know, she begins in a very free-spirited way, you know, she's borrowed some trousers, she's able to roam the the property. When she starts discovering things on this property and about this property and in terms of how it's been acquired and who might still be living on this property, She's and she asks questions about all of this. She is very quickly brought into line and forced to conform as a woman, which um, you know she she's like a horse. She's like a wild pony, you know, trapped in a in a strong box or something. She she's kind of kicking out at everyone around her, trying to find a freedom. So basically, the tension of the book is who wins this tussle? Is it the Craws or is it Poss? Yeah. So, Nikki, unfairness is a very strong theme in this book, as it has been in your others. And I wonder, is telling these stories in the way that you do in your fiction a way of addressing that unfairness and and perhaps trying to remedy it? Yes. You know, I don't know that I can ever remedy any of the unfairnesses that I've talked about throughout my writing. Um, I, I just, you know, go by the adage that knowledge is power. And if I can um, contribute a little bit to that knowledge, then I have done a good thing. Even, even if I, you know, it's only one or a handful of readers. That's why, in a way, I like writing for the Weekend Australian magazine. You know, that newspaper is not my world, my politics. In a way, I'm a stranger in a strange land writing for the Australian. But, you know, I think why preach to the uncon- why preach to the converted why why write within an echo chamber it's it feels much more effective and dangerous and terrifying but necessary in a way 
to talk to those that don't necessarily agree with what I'm writing about. And if I can change the mind of just one of them, I feel like my job's done or just get my readers to think differently, um, then that's a good thing. You know, I, 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 I always want to write compassionately and with The Ripping Tree, my compassion was poured out to, you know, Indigenous people and also to women in early colonial times, white women, um, in terms of the hardships that they all faced. Let's talk a little bit about the language that you use in your books. You're known for using very poetic, beautiful language. And I've heard you say, I need to have the right rhythm in my sentences to make the words sing. So I know the sound of the writing, the rhythm of the language is very important to you. There's so many examples of beautiful language in this book, but there, there was just one that I picked out as an example where it's in the early days of Post talking to Mouse and she swears in front of him and that's not something that he's used to hearing and he finds that quite thrilling to hear a sort of quasi-adult swearing. And you talk about the, I'll try and say this, it's a tongue twister, the salty, sailory cussing that's now tipping into him, no, that's now tipping him into thrillingly illicit territory. How important is it to you to choose the right words? How much polishing is involved to produce writing like that? Oh, look, it's so important for me. Um, poetry is always my tuning fork and I find when I'm writing my own fiction, I can't read anyone else's fiction around me. Um, I, I read a lot of poetry, though. I love the way it is language distilled to its essence um, and I love how effective it can be in conveying things. Um, so it's it's very important to me to write with beauty. Um, I've always tried to, but I've always been very, very aware of the rhythm of my prose as well, as you were saying. Um, to me, it's all about the rhythm. Um, you know, it has to sing. It, it, it can't be repetitive. It's, it's, it's so important where the full stop and the commas and all the rest of it go. How do you find that rhythm, Nikki? Do you read it aloud to yourself or to someone? No, no, no. I, I read it in my head. Um, but I can tell instantly if the rhythm isn't right. And I must admit, when I write my columns, I, I use that discipline with my column writing as well. And often I find the, you know, the newspaper sub-editors, they don't quite get what I'm doing because, you know, they're used to a different world and a different way of writing and they'll just put commas in everywhere and to me it's like ah oh, no no please don't you know in a way I'm breaking rules all the time grammar rules all the time I'm not a pedant when it comes to um you know grammar and words and all the rest of it it's just how effective it is to convey meaning and whether that means rules are broken so be it <laughs> Nikki you said before I write to answer questions there's something unknown or bewildering and I write to either answer the question of why or what's gone on here. What questions were you answering with this book, The Ripping Tree? I wanted to dive deep into the world of what really happened in our Indigenous past. I'm sick of the cover-ups. I'm sick of the evasions. I'm sick of people not dealing with it. Um, I feel like it's a great guilt that we carry within us as a nation 
So I wanted to examine all that through through fiction. I mean, Dr. Anita Heiss, she said, a wonderful Indigenous writer, she said recently that if you want to write a big Australian book, you cannot avoid the question of our Indigenous past. And I certainly did not want to avoid that at all. I, I, I can't see how you could write a colonial novel without addressing it. So that was one injustice I wanted to look at. And also, you know, I've we've all had the Me Too movement over the last four or five years. And for me, that has been very, very strongly with me. You know, the resonances throughout history as I was creating Tom, as I was creating her claustrophobic world that she was railing against, as I was, you know, having her bound in clothes she didn't want to wear and and thinking she's going mad because she's seeing things that are deeply unfair but she's not allowed to talk about them or question them, that they're treated as normal. I, I felt there were resonances with the Me Too movement too. So many instances of, of injustice came into this book and those two are the main ones. Nikki, of course, as it turns out, this book about a strong, feisty young woman who resists attempts to be silenced couldn't be more timely. As it turns out, that the book actually came out just at about the time of the rape allegations by Brittany Higgins. You've written about that and you said this, anger changes the world for the better. This is a watershed moment. The rage is real and still seething. It's, it is seemed like an underground river right through so many women. To what extent is the ripping tree an expression, really a howl of rage, at attempts to control and silence women down through the ages? It, it's absolutely a howl of rage in terms of what happened early this year in Parliament House in Canberra. You know, I, I wrote, I am rage. And in one of the articles that I wrote, I listed all the ways that I am rage. And there are about 20 you know, the different ways that I'm just enraged by the whole situation. But, yes, I do feel rage is seamed through me in terms of the treatment of women and um, I carry that rage from my grandmother, from my mother, um, you know, the stories that they've told me. Um, yes, we can function in the world and all the rest of it, um, but um, we do carry that deep-seated rage at unfairness and injustice. So I do feel like The Ripping Tree is very timely and it's really just, it, 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 it carries through a generational rage that I think a lot of women will recognise. Nikki, thank you so very much for talking with me today on Books, Books, Books. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. I've been reading your books for as long as I can remember and I wish you the very best with this wonderful book. Oh, Nicole, thank you so much. What a joy. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Books, Books, Books. If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go to my website, nicoleabbotty.com.au to listen to all the episodes and find out more about the podcast. You can also find me, Nicole Abbotty, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and look for my reviews in Good Weekend. You can subscribe to Books, Books, Books at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all the usual places. It would be lovely if you could go to any of these platforms and give Books, Books, Books a rating or review. Thank you. I look forward to talking books with you again soon. Bye.